For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this afternoon, The Adversary, this is Revelation chapter 12, beginning with verses 1 through 6. So in our study of Revelation, we have now arrived at chapter 12 and the beginning of another cycle here in the book. Uh, The chapter begins with another series of visions given to the Apostle John, and this section that begins in chapter 12 ends then in chapter 15 with a prelude to the bold judgments. So we're looking at a section of text that runs from Revelation chapter 12 through Revelation chapter 15. So to help us understand where we are on the map of Revelation, very broadly, we began with the opening prologue in chapter 1. There's an opening prologue to Revelation, and there's an epilogue to Revelation and then seven sections of text in between, okay? We began in the opening prologue, chapter one. The Lord addresses the seven churches in chapters two and three. There's a throne room scene and a loosing of the seven seals in chapters four through eight. And then we saw judgments poured out under the blast of the seven trumpets in chapters eight through 11. So an, open, an opening prologue, three cycles were beginning tonight, the fourth cycle in Revelation chapter 12. As we've discussed before, the structure of Revelation, the structure of the text is key to understanding the book. If you get the structure wrong, you're going to get the book wrong, right? And the structure of the text is understood from the language of the text. For example, the cycle of trumpets in chapter 11 ended with consummative language, okay? Language that describes final judgment final salvation and the consummation of all things. In that language, we saw that the church has finished her testimony there at the end of chapter 11. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord, the kingdoms of his Christ. The time of the dead has come that they should be judged. And we saw that consummative or final judgment language that included the temple of God being opened in heaven. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. All of that language should Uh, indicate to us that we're arriving at the very end of a cycle and at the beginning of the next. It's language that helps us understand we're coming to the end of a section. At the end, we saw the same thing, the same language. At the end of the cycle of seals, for example, in Revelation chapter 8, where John sees again the temple of God open in heaven, A golden censer is filled with fire and cast to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, a lightning, and an earthquake. That same language telling us where that section of text ends. In addition to that consummative language, though, being used at the end of a cycle, at the end of the age, it's also used, that same language also used to link or connect one cycle to another cycle, to the next cycle. For example, if you remember in Revelation chapter 4, between the third cycle or between the seven churches there in Revelation chapter two and three and the beginning of the next cycle, the cycle of seals in Revelation chapter four, we see that same language. John looks, he sees a door standing open in heaven. He's given a vision of the heavenly temple and around the throne, there were lightnings, thunderings, and voices. In Revelation 15, At the end of this cycle, leading into the next cycle, we'll see the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. 
All of that language serves to tell us what the structure of the book is. It indicates the structure of the book of Revelation. There's more that could be said, but you get the idea, right? The language of the book is used to indicate to us the structure of the book. So what we're dealing with then in Revelation from the language of the text is we're dealing with a a literary structure comprised of seven recapitulating cycles or sections in the book. Seven repeating cycles. Recapitulating, that word is used because they, they roughly repeat. They roughly recycle the same period of history. A period that begins with the first coming of Jesus Christ and a period that ends with his return at the end of the age. And for that reason, each of those seven cycles that cover roughly that same period of redemptive history run parallel to one another in the book. They're given to us sequentially, but each of those cycles covers the same period of time, that same period of time running parallel. Hope that makes sense to you. So as we, as we progress then through these parallel cycles, the cycles then increasingly emphasize the time of the end. So as you, if you recall, as we went through the cycle of trumpets and we came to the end of that cycle in Revelation chapter 11, we saw the cycle of trumpets increasingly emphasize the time of the end. When Jesus Christ comes back, when final judgment is poured out, when the salvation of God's people is brought to pass and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, right? Those, these cycles increasingly emphasize the time of the end up until and including final judgment and final salvation. So these parallel cycles and then this increasing emphasis on the end of those cycles and the end of the age. Due to that increasing emphasis, pressing pressing us more and more against uh, final judgment and the end of the age, we then refer to the structure of the book as progressive parallelism, right? That's where we get that title for the structure of the book. Revelation is a book of progressive parallelism. Parallel cycles that progress in their emphasis upon the end of the age. Now, similar to the way in which the book can be divided into seven literary cycles, we'll look at that more as we work through the cycles, the book of Revelation can also be divided into two halves. Both halves of the book of Revelation encouraging the church with respect to her worship and her witness. If we had to think about the book of Revelation and boil uh, the purpose, if you will, of the book of Revelation down into a single statement. The single statement might be this. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to encourage the church in her worship and in her witness as she perseveres through this age, right? The church must persevere through suffering, persevere through tribulation. And while she perseveres through tribulation, the church must be careful to maintain her worship and her witness during this evil age. So we have both halves of the book of Revelation then written for the purpose of encouraging the church in her worship and in her witness. The first half of Revelation, chapters one through 11, the half that we just completed, that first half addresses the worship and witness of the church in relationship to this world in relationship to her spiritual enemies, in relationship to those who dwell upon the earth, those earth dwellers who inhabit this age with us. The seven letters introduce that conflict by describing ways in which the church during this age is tempted to compromise in the face of difficulty. She faces temptation from enemies at work against her from inside the church. 
She faces temptation from enemies at work against her from outside the church. And in the cycle of seals and the cycle of trumpets that follow, John describes the judgments of God and those spiritual forces that have been unleashed that cause all that difficulty that we face during our time of tribulation. Each shows how God's people are sealed and preserved through those judgments. So again, the first half of Revelation, dealing with the church in her relationship to the world, the church in relationship to her spiritual enemies and all that those enemies throw at her uh, during this age of tribulation. The second half of Revelation then, the half that we begin tonight with chapter 12, the second half of Revelation addresses the worship of the church, the witness of the church in relationship to the ultimate cause of all that adversity. The ultimate cause behind all that suffering, the ultimate cause behind all that persecution. In other words, it addresses the worship and the perseverance and the witness of the church in relationship to her adversary, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Behind all of those enemies, behind all of those spiritual forces arrayed against us, behind the, the horde of demon locusts that come out of the pit, for example, uh, under the, uh, the, the blast of the trumpets, right? Um, behind all of that is the work of our adversary, is the work of Satan. And what was hinted at during the first half of the book of Revelation now becomes clearly asserted in the second half of Revelation. It is the devil who stands behind the beast. It is the devil who stands behind the false prophet. It's the devil who stands behind those spiritual forces arrayed against the church. It's the devil who stands behind the whore Babylon. Uh, It's the devil that stands behind all of the persecution and all of the suffering that the church faces. Now, There are reasons why that knowledge, that understanding should be an encouragement to the church, right? Revelation, again, remember, is written to encourage the church in her worship and in her witness. So as we think about that, as we think about the structure of the book, as we think about the the central message of the book, uh, our relationship now in the second half of Revelation, particularly to our adversary, our enemy, the devil, how in the world is that to encourage us? Why, Why would that encourage the church as she perseveres through tribulation. Let me give you a few reasons. One, behind the suffering, behind the persecution that we face at the hands of wicked men, both inside and outside the church, inside and outside the professing church, behind them is Satan and his forces. Behind the suffering, behind the persecution, behind the difficulty that we've just faced together as a church, behind all of that are principalities and powers. Behind all of that is the work of our enemy, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's an, there's an explanation to all of that difficulty. When we face difficulty in the church, there's an explanation for it, amen? And we may ask ourselves, why is that an encouragement to the church? It's an encouragement to the church, brothers and sisters, because God has said that it would happen. It should encourage us because God has said that it would happen. This is not caught God by surprise. This is not outside of his sovereign will. God has told us specifically these things will happen. It is with much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom. God has said that it would happen. And second, God has said that it is proof that we are blessed when it does happen. Like listen to this from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, 
Don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice. Now, why would we rejoice when that fiery trial comes upon us? Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That's the reality of that trial. When we go through those trials, we are partaking of Christ's sufferings. So that when his glory is revealed, Peter says, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's an indication when you face trials like that, when you're reproached because of your work for the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're reproached because of your stand for righteousness, when you're reproached because you want to follow the Bible, when you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and you stand opposed to those who do not, when you're reproached in that manner, it is evidence that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We should take that as an indication from God that we have his blessing. Do you see? On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Don't let us, we shouldn't suffer for, for our own unrighteousness. Yet, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So when we face difficulties together, we're to glorify God. And I know that's easier said than done. They're called difficulties for a reason. <laughs> it's called tribulation for a reason. But when we face difficulty, when we face suffering, when we face tribulation, we're to glorify God in it because God intends to, that is an evidence of God's blessing on us. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Brothers and sisters, that's why when we're going through difficulty, when we go through suffering, when we face adversity, we have got to adhere. We've got to stick closely to the Bible. We have to do what the Bible says. We have to obey the word of God. We have to cling to him who is our life. Why? It's the only evidence that we have that we're walking in his will, that we're adhering to his way, that we're adhering to his word. We have to commit our souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. And then we know that we suffer according to the will of God. So one, it's an encouragement to the church because behind all that suffering and persecution is the work of our enemy. And God has told us that it would be so, Okay. Second, it should be an encouragement to the church because Satan, our great enemy, is not autonomous. He's not autonomous. God is sovereign. He has set the parameters of Satan's opposition. Satan is on a choke chain. Right? He doesn't operate outside parameters that have been set for him by God. He's not allowed, can't do anything that he's not been decreed by God to do. Satan has already suffered a devastating and a decisive defeat. The true king has already been raised from the dead. The true king has already been seated upon his throne. So Satan has a limited time to do what he's going to do. And Satan has a limited power to do what he's going to do. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. We'll see it as we get there in this chapter. The devil has come down to us having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Well, who else knows that? We do. 
<laughs> it's been revealed to us in God's word. He has a short time. He prowls now seeking those whom he may devour, but he has a limited time in which he can do that. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's not only has a limited time, he also has a limited power to do what he's going to do. He cannot and he will not prevail. We are waging a war in which we, in union with Christ, are already victorious. So behind all that suffering and persecution and tribulation is Satan. God has said that it would be so. And Satan is not autonomous. He is limited both in his uh, time and in his power. Third, God preserves his people. God preserves his people. That's what this book is teaching us. God's people are sealed. G.K. Beale describes Revelation 12 in this way. He says, the main point of chapter 12 is the protection of God's people against Satan because of Christ's decisive victory over Satan through his death and resurrection. It's the main point of the chapter that we're undertaking. God's protection of his people against Satan. The purpose is to encourage the readers to persevere in their witness despite persecution. We're fighting a war that's already been won. So despite a very real and very painful difficulty, despite the suffering that we go through, we can fight, we can continue, we can labor, we can persevere with confidence. We can continue to fight with courage. We can continue to fight without shrinking back, without losing heart, without the fear of man. You are invincible until God is done with you. <laughs> and praise God when he's done with you, we go to heaven, <laughs> right? Uh, we don't have anything to fear during this age. We face a defeated foe and God is the one who preserves his people. Part of living this Christian life together uh, in the church is laboring in light of that reality. Like, uh, us becoming convinced of the fact that we have nothing here. This is not our home. We are citizens of another age. We are citizens of another kingdom. We serve another king. We don't belong here. And we can serve in this age without fear of man, without fear of reprisal, without, what can man do to us? What, can, kill the body? Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell, right? Fear him. We have nothing to fear in this life. We should serve the Lord we should serve the Lord with boldness and with courage without shrinking back. So we begin to see then those spiritual realities, those spiritual realities that are communicated in, to us in this book. We begin to see those spiritual realities depicted for us in the vision of John that opens Revelation chapter 12. Chapter 12 gives a vision to the apostle John that he records for us. And it's through those symbols, it's through that vision that we begin to understand this war, if you will, with our adversary, the devil. We see them in the form of an apocalypse. Apocalypsis, it's a word that means revelation. We see them in the form of a revelation of spiritual realities that lie behind our physical or temporal circumstances. Behind everything that we face on this earth as a church, the, the very real difficulty, tribulation that we face, there are spiritual forces behind those realities. There are spiritual realities that are, that are in play behind those earthly, physical, temporal circumstances that we face. And we understand those physical, temporal circumstances and the forces arrayed behind them through the symbols that are given to us, for example, in Revelation 12. 
How are we to understand the very trials and tribulations, the very real trials and tribulations that we face? Revelation 12, apocalypto. Revelation 12 reveals what we do not see with our eyes. You see, Revelation 12, through the use of symbols, reveals what we do not see or experience through our senses. In Revelation 12, we see Satan, the adversary, at war with the seed of the woman. Now that, that information alone uh, explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> as we face difficulty in this life as a church, that answers a lot of questions. In Revelation 12, we see Satan, our adversary, at war with the seed of the woman. Seed singular, meaning Jesus Christ, and seed plural, or corporate, referring to the elect of God, all those who would believe upon him to everlasting life. And this war that began at the very beginning of recorded history with the fall of Adam and the curse upon the serpent, where enmity was placed between the serpent and the woman, between his seed and her seed, that enmity has now been directed against God's people throughout redemptive history. And there is no exception. Every one of God's people who have lived throughout redemptive history have faced the, 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 the warfare of this enemy. There will be no exception. So if, if progressive parallelism then is the structure of the book, and if each of the cycles in the book describe essentially the same period of time, and we think about those realities, then what time period, as we begin the fourth cycle now in Revelation chapter 12, what time period would you expect, Revelation 12, 13, 14, 15, what time period would you expect this cycle to cover? If you say, well, the time period between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ, you'd be exactly right. It's the same time period that the other cycles have, have covered. What time period would you expect that time period? Where would you expect the cycle to begin? You'd expect the cycle to begin at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's exactly where Revelation 12 begins. So again, the structure of the book helps us to understand the meaning of the book. As you would expect... Revelation 12 depicts that ongoing war that's taking place during our age, the church age, and it begins with the birth, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus Christ. Look at verse one. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, threw them back to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. In the text, John has been looking toward heaven. Remember, that's where chapter 11 ended with John looking into heaven. The temple of God was opened there. The ark of his covenant was seen there. And the scene was set within a context of final judgment. And the language 
being used at the end of Revelation chapter 11 is indicative of that scene, that setting, final judgment. But now, as John continues to gaze into heaven, his attention in chapter 12 is drawn to two great signs. First, the sign of a woman about to give birth, and second, the sign of a great fiery red dragon. Now, a sign in scripture is something that is visual and symbolic. As signs often do, signs point us to or remind us of something else. They point us to something else or they remind us of something else. That's what a sign does. A baby lying in a manger was the sign to the shepherds that they had found the Messiah. Right? You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Judas's traitorous kiss of betrayal was the sign to the cohort that they could arrest him, that they were going to arrest the right guy, right? Those were signs. Most often in scripture, though, signs refer to miracles. Within the gospel of John, for example, there is a book of signs. Those, that book of signs includes the Lord healing people, feeding the multitudes, knowing the future, the greatest of his signs being his resurrection from the dead. All of those signs pointing, uh, pointing us to spiritual realities. Now, a sign of this nature doesn't only point us to an immediate reference. In other words, Jesus restoring the sight of the man born blind in John chapter 9 does not point us only or immediately to the fact that Jesus has power to give sight to someone who is physically blind. It doesn't only have an immediate referent, it also has a transcendent referent. In other words, the miraculous sign where Jesus Christ heals the man born blind in John chapter 9 is intended to transcend that earthly referent that Jesus can heal someone born blind and to say, to point us to the fact that this is the son of the living God. Right? It's to point to the fact that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The one who has power on earth to, to heal physical blindness is the one who has power on earth and authority on earth to heal our spiritual blindness and to deliver us from sin and death. He is the Messiah, the promised king, right? That's what that sign points us to. It has an immediate referent and it has a transcendent referent. At a basic level, the sign indicates that there are realities that exist behind or beyond what we can perceive through our senses. The sign points us to realities that exist behind our five senses, behind what we can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch, right? In other words, behind this world that we, behind this realm that we experience with our five senses lies a realm that we cannot sense with our five senses. It is beyond sensory perception. And these signs point us to the reality of that realm. What you can see, hear, touch, smell, or taste is not all there is. It's not all there is. We have a soul that is beyond our five senses, right? In that sense, <laughs> There is something behind this realm that we can't see, hear, touch, smell, or taste. Now, that should be evident to us by the fact that there is a creation. There is a creation that we can see, hear, touch, smell, and taste. But the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. In other words, that sign, the sign of creation, points us beyond our five senses to the one who created it all. Right? That should point us to a realm in which God dwells, right? God is 
all places at all times, but we see him depicted in scripture as, as inhabiting that realm, pointing us to a realm behind this one. But God also has stooped, right? God has also, the transcendent has condescended to become imminent, become near. And God has given us his word. And he's confirmed his word as the word of God through accompanying signs. Signs are to point to the veracity, the truth, the reality of God's word. Even those signs done by false apostles and false prophets confirm his word, don't they? They confirm his word. So brothers and sisters, we don't follow then cunningly devised fables, as Peter would say. We don't follow cunningly devised fables. The apostles were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. They heard with their own ears the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The apostles heard that with their ears and that sign points them to the reality of a realm that exists beyond their five senses, right? The sign points them to spiritual realities. And we have their eyewitness testimony recorded for us on the pages of scripture. Peter tells us, we heard the voice from heaven. And he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It's in this way, Peter says, that we have the word of the prophets confirmed. We have the word of the prophets confirmed by eyewitnesses of the signs, which Peter says we do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Now, what does the sign confirm? The sign confirms that this is not a word or a prophecy that has been produced by man. The sign confirms rather that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And this is God's book, not man's book. Make sense? So, as we think about those signs and the purpose of those signs, even the scribes and Pharisees acknowledged that miraculous signs were not of this world. Often when the scribes and Pharisees uh, went to test the Lord Jesus Christ, they asked Jesus Christ to give them a sign from heaven. To give them a sign from heaven. So the scribes and the Pharisees themselves, they acknowledged that those signs were indicative of another realm indicative of a realm that exists behind our five senses. All that to say, brothers and sisters, that again, behind the difficulty that we face, behind our work as a church, behind our worship, behind our experience, the experiences that we have in our circumstances, that we experience with our five senses, behind all of that lie spiritual realities. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. And these signs point us to those realities. So when John sees two signs in heaven, right? One of a woman in pain about to give birth, the other of a great fiery red dragon, those signs, those symbols, the symbols that we're about to get in Revelation 12, point us to realities that explain our circumstances. They point us to spiritual realities that Give us an explanation for why we go through what we go through in our service of the Lord, in our service of the Lord's church. And in that way, it should encourage the people of God. Although heaven is a part of God's created order, the heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain him. The realm of heaven is revealed to us as the seat of his rule. 
It's revealed to us as the seed of his glory, as an expression of his glory. And this realm, the realm of heaven, is the realm from which he administers his government over the earth. So when John sees a sign in heaven, he's seeing a sign that has been given to us from the place where God is said to it, or where the Bible reveals that God administers his government over the earth. If you remember from Revelation chapter four, for example, In Revelation 4, John looks and beholds a door standing open in heaven. And he hears a voice like a trumpet, come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. So John, what happens in Revelation chapter 4? John is ushered into the throne room of God where the Ancient of Days is seated on the throne. Now again, the Ancient of Days doesn't have a form. God is spirit. But John sees a revelation of God as seated upon a throne, seated upon in a heavenly realm which cannot contain him, What's being revealed? This is where God administers, or this is a vision of God administering his rules and decrees over the earth, administering his government over the earth. In that chapter, in chapter four, John sees God enthroned, seated upon his throne, enthroned in a rainbow. The spirit of God is depicted as seven burning torches before the throne. There's a sea of glass like crystal, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. All of these things are symbolic. They're all pointing us to spiritual realities. Four living creatures, the cherubim, who are created beings, they do not cease their praise. Day and night, they praise and worship him. The 24 elders are seated on thrones around him wearing crowns of gold, and they cast their crowns before him saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We're given this vision of God's enthroned government, if you will, in the throne room of heaven. It's into this scene in Revelation chapter five then that the worthy one comes, if you remember, right? The lion from the tribe of Judah. He takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne and he begins to loose its seven seals. As he loosens its seven seals, he begins to execute the decrees concerning this age that are written upon the scroll. And what's going on in Revelation chapter five? The Lord Jesus Christ all authority given to him now begins to administer his rule and reign over the affairs that take place on the earth. In other words, that is the spiritual reality that lies behind the very real experience of the circumstances that we face on this earth as we live during this age, right? Behind all of the suffering, the judgments that are being poured out, the difficulty that we face, behind all of that are spiritual forces at work is a spiritual realm where God is administering his rule and reign over the earth. All those types and shadows are given to us so that we can understand. We know that God is ruling and reigning from his throne. Types and shadows, pictures and depictions give us an understanding of that transcendent realm. It's through those symbols through those types and shadows, that we're provided with a glimpse of how that government operates, how that realm works, is how that realm is active in determining the events and the circumstances that we face, the events and circumstances that, we, that take place in this realm. That realm interacts with this realm, and we see how that works through the symbols that are given to us, for example, in Revelation 12. That realm influences this realm, and that interaction is depicted particularly in the book of Revelation, through symbols and signs. So that when we see, for example, war and death with our eyes, 
You can practically watch it on the news right now, right? When we hear of misery and death with our ears, in other words, when we experience those things through our five senses, when the, when the stench of war, death, fills our nostrils as we live in this world, we know through God's word that it is the judgment of God. The activity of that judgment, the reality of that judgment, mediated symbolically for us, so to speak, by the activity, for example, of a horseman. In Revelation chapter six, sent out at the loosing of the second seal to take peace from the earth that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. That symbolic depiction helps us to understand the spiritual realities that are behind the very real circumstances that we face. Those types and shadows, not merely given that we might understand, but that we might understand in a way that God has intended that we should understand. You know, you've heard that statement, a picture is worth, worth a thousand words. We could say the same of these symbols in scripture, right? These symbols in Revelation. Uh, they, they're, they're loaded, loaded with theological significance. So all that to say then, if that helps, in Revelation chapter 12, John is given, given these two great signs from heaven. And these great signs point us to spiritual realities. Signs that point us beyond a mere physical or temporal referent. Signs that depict transcendent realities and realities that form the intersection, if you will, between the activities of two realms. And it's given from the very seat of God's government over the earth. It's given from that open doorway, if you will, into heaven. So as John gazes into heaven then, his attention is drawn to two great signs, the sign of a woman about to give birth and the sign of a great fiery red dragon. That's fascinating to me. These are signs or symbols given to the apostle John in the book of Revelation, the last book in our Bible. Uh, the capstone of the canon, right? Revelation at the very end. And they are signs or symbols that are derived from the very opening chapters of the Bible, right? This woman giving birth and a great fiery red dragon. Those are signs or symbols that are derived from the opening chapters, the opening um, events of redemptive history. Listen to this in Genesis chapter three, beginning in verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's this interaction between this woman and the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. God pronounces a curse against the serpent. And God says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be hostility between you and the woman. That doesn't mean only that women are fearful of snakes. <laughs> There's a lot more theological significance loaded into that statement than just the fact that women tend to be afraid of snakes. Um, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, her seed, shall bruise your head and you, you cursed serpent, shall bruise his heel. And thus the war ensues. So the, the very signs given to the apostle John in Revelation chapter 12 of a woman giving birth and a great fiery red dragon, those signs are derived from redemptive history. Signs that have already been given that explain to us those spiritual realities, those spiritual 
forces at work behind our physical, temporal, earthly circumstances. So in the opening verses of Revelation 12 then, in explanation of all that takes place during this age, remember the cycle is going to deal from the first coming, the time period between the first coming of Jesus Christ and his return. In explanation of all that takes place during this age, during that time period, from the birth of Jesus Christ till his return, we are introduced then to three figures. A woman who is about to give birth to a child. We're introduced to that male child who is set to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And we're introduced to a serpent. That serpent has grown in power and influence by the time we come to the book of Revelation. He's now described as a great fiery red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and diadems on all of his heads. And he stands by now this great fiery red dragon who's grown in power and significance over the earth. He stands by waiting to devour the male child as soon as he is born. The enmity that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent explains the persecution and suffering experienced by the church in this age. We're gonna see that as we work through this chapter. The suffering, the difficulty, the adversity, the tribulation that we face as a church during this age, during our own pilgrimage, as we carry the torch in our own generation, the difficulty that we face is explained by the enmity that was placed between the seed of the serpent, between the serpent and the woman. The enmity that exists between her seed and his seed. The adversary, he is, our enemy is the adversary. Revelation chapter 12, verse nine, describes him as the great dragon, that serpent of old called Diabolos. Diabolos is a word that means slanderer. When people slander, they act like a Diabolos. They are a Diabolos. They are acting as their father, the devil. The dragon, that serpent of old, was the original slanderer. He is the Diabolos. He's described as that serpent of old called Diabolos and Satan. Satan is a word that means adversary or enemy. He is our enemy. And he is that, safe, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He is the deceiver. As we'll see from the testimony of Revelation chapter 12, brothers and sisters, he is a defeated foe. He's a defeated foe. Defeated, really. Defeated at the cross in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and will be destroyed fully and finally at the brightness of his coming. And we should, and we, brothers and sisters, serve the rightful king. As we serve the rightful king, knowing all of this, having all of this explained to us, what's the purpose? What's the purpose? The purpose of explaining all these things to us is so that we might persevere with great endurance, so that we might persevere with faith, with boldness, with confidence, with hope, with joy, so that we might persevere and endure with patience during this very difficult age while we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we understand what's going on behind the scenes. We understand what has happened. We understand that our foe is a defeated foe. We understand that victory will be consummated, that the everlasting kingdom will be ushered in, that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, that we will rule and reign with him in eternity. We have a confidence of knowing that because God's word has revealed it to us. So it should encourage us in our own service to the Lord. It's easy to get discouraged. 
we were talking about it this morning. It's just, you know, sometimes it gets the better of me. <laughs> just easy to be discouraged. And, uh, but we need a reminder uh, that the Lord God rules and reigns. He rules and reigns over this age. He rules and reigns over the very circumstances that we face. And we can trust him. We will be taken into glory in due time if we faint not. So let's continue serving him with confidence. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you. I thank you for encouraging us with these words. Thank you for encouraging us with these realities. Thank you, Lord, for how you communicate spiritual truth to us. It's very, very helpful, very encouraging. And help us, Lord, to meditate on the symbols, the pictures, the depictions, the illustrations that are used um, so that we can gain a fuller understanding of all that has happened, all that is happening, all that will happen, that we might trust you for whatever comes, that we might serve you despite a fear of man, that we might serve you despite our temptations to compromise, that we would serve you with boldness, with confidence, that we would not compromise, that we would not give in to a fear of man, that we might serve you boldly with the gospel in anticipation of the consummation of a victory that's already been won in consummation of a kingdom that has already been delivered, uh, in consummation of a judgment that has already been secured against our enemy, the adversary. Help us to be bold in our service to you. Help us not to shrink back, but to press forward. May it be to your glory. May it abound in fruit for the glory of your name. We love you, Lord. We thank you for these things. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.